All right, grab a Bible if you would and turn to Genesis chapter 2, please. Genesis chapter 2. We've been uh, preaching through the beginning of the book of Genesis. We've worked our way through chapter 1, and we're up to now chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Jeremy was ready to preach on the first three verses of chapter 2. But as you know, we didn't meet last week. And I was scheduled to preach this week, starting at verse 4. And so um, Pastor Jeremy is on vacation with his family this week. And so we're going to do a little flip-flop, a little bit out of order. And we're going to stick with the passages that were assigned. So uh, this morning I'm going to be preaching starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. And then next week Pastor Jeremy will uh, go back uh, to the first three verses of of chapter 2. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the garden of of blessing here, the garden. So let's pray, and then we'll open up God's Word together. Father God, you are great and glorious. You've given us your Word, which we're thankful for. So we ask you would help us now as we look into your Word. Would you give us wisdom to understand and grace to apply to our lives? We pray this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 17. You can follow along with me. Starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so here in uh, verse 4, as we begin, it's important for us to take note that the Bible is not written chronologically. right? So it is not linear in nature throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's not always a, a straight line from book to book or even within each book. All right, And so this is how things were communicated in, in the Hebrew. Right? It's a little different for us. We tend to think more start to end in a straight line. Um, but they had a little different. It applies here in Genesis. Genesis is written 
more like a series of loops. Okay? So it gives uh, uh, some events, and then it loops back around to pick up an aspect of something mentioned, and it kind of carries that line of thinking that. It flushes it out more. And that process repeats. It goes on. It carries a series of events and then loops back around to pick up on something and explain that a little bit more and flush that aspect out a little more. And that's what's happening already here in in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1 has given the account of the creation and the six days of creation. The beginning of uh, chapter 2 tells us about the seventh day. And then starting in verse 4, we loop back around to get more of the creation account. And so it starts here by saying these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. So this word generations here is interesting. It has kind of a family uh, connotation behind it. In other words, kind of offspring or genealogy. So this is indicating a, a coming forth from, okay, a proceeding from something else. So these are the generations. This is the account coming forth from the creation of the heavens and earth. We see this uh, example uh, of this wording throughout the book of Genesis a number of times. Uh, We see it over in chapter 5, verse 1. You can flip there quick if you want. In chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about Adam. So Adam has been written about in each of the first four books of the Bible. But then in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So here Moses, the author of Genesis, kind of loops back around to the creation of man and that which then proceeded forth from him. Adam was the first man created. And so in Genesis 5 here, there's a more flushing out of that which came forth as a result of Adam. Next time we see this phrase is in chapter 6, verse 9. It reads, these are the generations of Noah. So Noah was mentioned in chapter 5. He was mentioned in the beginning of chapter 6. But now again, Moses kind of loops back around to pick up events surrounding Noah and that which proceeded from him or came forth from him. So as you read through the book of Genesis, you'll find this happening, this phrase of generations used in this way a total of ten times. So ten different times there's this word, the generation used in this way, and a looping back around to kind of pick up on something, a certain line of events, and carry forth with something different. We aren't going to look at all ten, but, but they're there throughout uh, the book of Genesis. So that's what's happening here in, in verse 4. Genesis 1 tells us of the creation And then chapter 2, verse 4, begins to describe that which further, that which came about as a result of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So then continuing in verse 4, we read that in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So there uh, we see the word day. Pastor Jeremy has previously preached on this word day as we saw it in in chapter 1. He explained that the word day, uh, the meaning of that in chapter 1 was an actual 24-hour period when it says day. But he also pointed out that as you go throughout, uh, context is important and context matters, right? And so here in the context of verse 4, this word day is meaning a, a general period of time. So in the day, in the period of time that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, these things were, were happening and coming forth. 
All right? So again, let's pause and notice here again in verse 4 that we see the means by which the earth and the heavens came about. Right? They were created. They weren't always around. They were created, and they were created by the Lord God. We saw this in chapter 1, right? This is how everything came into existence. Everything had its origin, origin, everything had its beginning from God. He was the one who created all the heavens and the earth. So let there be no doubt here. Scripture is very clear that this is how the earth and the heavens came about. This is what God has done. God has created. So as we move forward here, we're going to see God's sovereignty in creation in the next couple verses. In verse 5, the ESV starts with the word when. Uh, If you have a different version of the Bible in front of you, it probably says now or and. So here it's important to note that this word when was not in the original Hebrew language. And so this is not referring to a time so much as it is referring to a condition. All right, verses 5 and 6 will tell us of the condition of the land, the condition of the earth. So we see here that there was a time when there were no small bushes and there was no rain yet. There was also no man to work and to cultivate and to bring forth crops. So again, we're looping back into chapter 1, right? And so we see in chapter 1, then day 3, vegetation came forth. There were trees bearing fruit, uh, plants that were yielding seed. But here, at this point, there was no, not all the vegetation, the bushes and the of small plants were here yet. There was no rain. And yet, we know that there were trees bearing fruit. So the question is, how can this be, right? How can there be trees bearing fruit when there's no seed, when there's no man to plant and to cultivate? How could this happen? Well, simply by the hand of God, right? God is sovereign, and he can do that. (laughs) He can have trees produce fruit without any rain. Right? He's sovereign. He can do that. God was in control here at this time, and he always will be in control. He is sovereign. We see that here. Right? The Lord God had not caused it to rain. God is in control of the rain. He is sovereign. God can water the earth by a mist. He is sovereign. God can bring forth fruit from trees. He is sovereign. God can send a hundred inches of rain, or snow in our case, right? God can send a hundred inches of snow. He is sovereign. So God gave everything its beginning in the time that he saw fit. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he can do whatever he wants in his timing. So question for you. Do you believe that God is in sovereign control over all things? Do you trust him? In faith. Let me ask it this way. If God should cease to send rain or snow upon our land, would you still trust him for your daily bread? This is a matter of, of faith and trusting him. Everything has come from nothing and all of that by the word of God. Everything began its existence by the word of God alone. And any attempt to explain this universe in any other way is an outright effort to diminish and to destroy the glory of God. God created that he might be glorified. Let's give him credit for his great 
glory. Let us always recognize God's hand in creation and his sovereign rule over it. Let's not try to explain existence of this world apart from God. So next here we're going to see the creation of man in verse 7. So again, this is, we've seen man created in chapter 1, right? The end of chapter 1 we saw this, so here's a looping back around again, and yet we're going to get a little more detail of the creation of man. And so we see here in verse 7 that God did two things. There's two verbs here for us to take, uh, uh, pay attention to, two action words for us to take note of. First, God formed, and then God breathed. God formed and God breathed. So first the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. So here we see God took action, right? God took action. Man was formed by special design, not by accident. God, in his sovereignty and with great skill, formed the man from the dust of the ground, And so we see here that this man is earthly. He is formed from the earth. And he is unlike God in this way. So end of chapter 1, we see that man is created in the image of God. And here we see that man is formed from the dust of the ground. He is earthly. And so God, with great wisdom, took this dust from the ground and he formed the body of a man, right? This is similar to a a potter working clay into a masterpiece, forming and fashioning, right? God formed this man with much skill. We'll leave that stay there for a while. All right. God formed this man with much skill. Think about the human body, right? Think about the human body, bones and skin, organs and eyeballs, Right? Arteries and veins, and they're all interconnected with such intricacy and detail and functioning all together. And there's a brain that makes all this happen, right? That orchestrates all that. So with much wisdom and skill and precision, God formed the physical body of a man. So God formed and then God breathed. Right? God breathed. He breathed into the nostrils of this body. He filled up lungs of this body with breath. He breathed the breath of life into this body. So God took this body that had no life, right? He formed the body, had no life, and he breathed life into it. He gave it life, and it became a living creature, a living soul and now had spiritual life and the capacity to worship God and to fellowship with God. Our God can take that which has no life and he can give it life. Isn't that incredible? God can take what has no life and he can breathe life into it. That's amazing power, right? How great is our God who can breathe life into something that has no life? This life of man was different than the life given to the rest of creation, right? The plants and the animals and things that creep on the ground, they all had life 
but it was just a physical, temporary life. But when man was given life, he was given life physically and spiritually. He had life. This is the fullness of of being human. Man is created as a physical, spiritual, and emotional being with a mind that has intelligence, that can think and process and make decisions. This is the, the unity of being human, the unity of humanity. Right? Physical, spiritual, emotional beings. This is the life that God has given to mankind. A couple points of quick application here. First, you must consider your origin. You must consider your origin. Don't forget where you came from. You're dust. That's what you are. God formed you from dust. You came from the ground. This should lead you to live with great humility. Great humility, knowing that you are simply dust. Right? And second, think about what is lifeless in your life right now. What in your life right now seems to be dead and hopeless? What are those circumstances that just seem like there's no life? Right? Maybe it's a troubled relationship. Maybe it's financial indebtedness. Maybe it's a state of depression. Maybe it's something else for you. Right? But here, God has the ability to give life. And he can give life into these circumstances. All right? So pray and ask God to bring life into these things that you're face, facing and then trust him to do it. In faith, trust him that he can give life to whatever might seem dead in your life. Next, we're going to look at the Garden of Blessing. The Garden of Blessing in verse 8 here and continuing. So in verse 8, we see that the Lord God planted the garden in Eden, in the east. Right? And there he placed the man whom he had formed. So those are some good questions for us to ask here, right? Looking at verse 8, where is the garden? Right? Well, we see that the garden was in Eden, okay? So the garden's in Eden, in the east, and so where's Eden, right? Or where was the man before he was placed in the garden in the east? Was the man in the west or the south or the north? I don't know, right? Where was he before? So we might not have an exact answer to all these questions, but that's okay. We can be content with that for now. We can make some assumptions on the the garden in Eden. We can assume uh, that the garden was probably somewhere in the Middle East based upon the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that are listed here a a little bit later. Uh, If so, that would be somewhere in the region of modern-day Iraq or Syria or maybe Turkey. However, we also know that there was a global flood that happened after this time, right, which changed the topography of, of the earth. So the exact location of the garden, we can't know for sure. Um, but that's okay. We can be content with that. We can trust God with that for now. But the important thing here is that we can know that this garden was a literal place. The garden was a real location, Okay, this isn't an allegorical story. It's not symbolic of something different. Eden was an actual place on the earth, and it had an actual garden physically present here on this earth. 
And then we read in verse 8 that God put the man here in this garden. So God had a purposeful placement of the man. God put this man in a special place. It's not by accident that Adam ended up in the garden. It was God's doing. Our sovereign God purposely placed him there. This garden was a, a place of tremendous blessing. It was bountiful with all good things. It had all the best things of the the earth that were to be enjoyed by man. All the beautiful sights and things to look at. All the wonderful sounds. All the best of the smells and tastes and feels. This is what God had created for man, for his enjoyment. This is a place of abundant provision, a place of tremendous goodness and richness and blessing. Right? We see that in the description of some of the trees here. Right? We see that the trees were pleasant to the sight. The trees that God had were beautiful to look at. They were majestic. We see that the trees were good for food. Their fruit was tasty and nourishing. Right? We see also here that there was a river. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So there was a source of water flowing and spread out. It split into four rivers and spread out in the garden to, to nourish the garden. The garden was well watered, right? It wasn't a, a wasteland. It was a land of abundance and vitality and life. We see here, too, that there was gold. There was delium. There was onyx stone. So there was all the resources here that man would need, right? The resources that man would need were all here in abundance. It was great blessing. And so of all the places on the earth that God had created, this was the one that God chose to place this man. This was the place of God's abundant blessing for Adam. Not only were there abundant physical blessings, but there was... There's a spiritual parallel here too. The physical garden of abundant blessing also pictures the abundance of spiritual blessing for the man. The first man here in the the midst of the physical world of blessing also experienced tremendous spiritual blessing. Then we see here too in the end of verse 9, also in the garden was the tree of life. The tree of life. So this here was... This tree of life was to serve as a reminder to Adam. So when Adam looked at the the tree of life, he would be reminded of something. See, God intended that man should always remember from where he has received his life. This way man would know that he is not a random happening of the universe, and he would know that his life is not his own, but he's dependent upon another. He would know that his life has come from God and that he would always be dependent upon his creator. Also in the garden, we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll talk about that a little more later on here. So what is the purpose of the garden here? The purpose of the garden. Look at verse 15. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So first purpose of the garden is to dwell, right, to dwell. The first purpose is to provide a place for the man to dwell, to live, to reside, 
Okay? God took this man and he purposefully placed him here in the garden. The wording here signifies a place of rest, a place of peace, a place to reside and dwell and be safe in peace. So of all, again, of all the places on earth, this was the one selected by God for the man to dwell, to live, to reside. Next, this was a place of blessing, purpose to bless in the garden. This garden would be a place where God would bless the man, right? We saw that already, this place of great blessing. How great is God that he delights to bless his people. This would be a place of special blessing. Then here more specifically in verse 15, we see that this is a place to work and to keep. To work and to keep. So the word work here is an active word. It means to cultivate or to serve. And so Adam was to work in service to God here in the garden. The word keep here is a passive word. It means to watch or observe. And so Adam was to provide watch care over the garden. So work and keep. And so there's a goodness to work. Right? Sometimes we look at work and we kind of grumble and complain and have to work again. But work is a good thing. There's a goodness to work. Adam was created to work. You were created to work. There's a goodness and a blessing in work. But there's also a balance in work. Right? So man was not to be idle or lazy, and yet man was not to idolize his work either. So there's time for us to really work, work hard serving the Lord. And there's also time for us to rest as well. And so work in the garden here was pleasant. Right? Work was pleasant. It wasn't burdensome. It wasn't full of trouble and toil. It wasn't stressful. This was good, enjoyable work that Adam had. So Adam was to work in this way. And he was also to keep. He was to have custody over the garden. He was to watch over it, have watch care over it. You have custody over things as well that God has committed to you. Custody over your marriage and your family. Custody over your job, over your finances. Custody over the plot of ground your home sits on custody over your roof stacked high with snow, right? These are the things that you are to keep. These are the things that you are to be aware of and provide watch care over. They're not to be shelled and ignored, but you're to be a good steward of these things for God's glory. So in the garden, Adam was to work and to keep. The other purpose of the garden was to fellowship, to fellowship. If we flip over to chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this. This is after Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But here in verse 8 we read, And they, Adam and his wife, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? I wonder what that sound sounded like, God walking through the garden. I don't know. But here we get a sense of God coming along to, to fellowship with man and woman. Right? He calls out, Where are you, Adam? Right? God is coming to to fellowship with them. We see throughout Scripture that God has specific places on the earth that he dwells with his people, that he fellowships with his people, 
right? And we know that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And yet he has specific places where he chooses to dwell in a special way, to be in special relationship with his people. And the first instance, instance of that is right here in the garden, right, in the garden. Later on we see the tabernacle, we see the temple. Currently in our day and age, it's within us as believers. God has indwelt us with his presence by his Holy Spirit. But this garden was to be a place of worship, a place to fellowship with God. Man was placed here in the garden to worship God, and his life was to be characterized by worship and by obedience. So next we see that a command is given. A command is given. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so here we see the first command of the Bible. Here in the garden, this perfect setting, this land of great abundance and blessing, there's a a prohibition. There's one prohibition given in this place of blessing, right? Man can enjoy all things in the garden, but one thing. There was one thing that was forbidden, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the man to eat of this tree would be in defiance of his creator and would come with great consequence. If you disobey my one command, you, Adam, will surely die. Now for Adam... He couldn't know or understand death, right? Think about that. Adam could not know or understand death. He had no concept of what that was. He had no experience with it, right? He had never seen it before, right? Death wasn't around before that. So he had no understanding of death. But does that free him from the responsibility here? Oh, absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. He's still held to responsibility. Everyone is held accountable to God. And think how great the chasm between the blessings available to Adam in the garden and the curse that would result from his disobedience. Life, vitality, blessing. But in disobedience, death and destruction. But in the garden, this command should be no problem at all, right? This land full of abundance and blessing should have no, no consequence. There should be no consideration of the man to partake of that one thing prohibited from him when there is so much blessing around him. Now think back for a minute to the name of this tree. This tree is named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This word knowledge here indicates an experiential knowledge, to know something by experience. So in other words, if Adam eats of the tree of life, he would know and experience life, right? But if he eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then he would begin to know and experience evil. 
And man would then have to make decisions for himself. He would have to decide what is good and what is evil. And let me tell you, this is a terrible thing. A terrible thing. Only God can know what is good. For he is sovereign and he has created all things. Only God knows what is good and what is evil. And so the knowledge, the experience of good and evil for Adam is a terrible thing. But here man is given a choice, right? He's given the choice on whether or not he wants to trust God. He's given the choice on whether he believes that God knows what is good. He has free will, free will to choose, right? You're free to eat. But it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Will he trust God? Will he trust that God knows what is good? And so God commanded, because he did, God knew what was good. That knowledge was his and his alone. God knew, however, that man would choose evil and bring death. But this command is a command of protection, right? It's similar to a parent and a child, right? A command that a parent would give to a child. Don't run out in the street, right? Don't stick the screwdriver into the outlet, right? Commands of protection. And this is true of all God's commands throughout Scripture, right? Because we in our flesh, we think we know what is good. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know what is right. But God's God's commands show us what is truly good and what is truly right. And so some of you here today are not experiencing God's abundant blessing for you because you're living in disobedience to him. You're choosing that you know what is best for you and you're disregarding the commands of God. You need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. Lastly, we'll look here at fall and restoration. Fall and restoration. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 6, we see that the man in disobedience, eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is known as the fall, the fall of man. Adam wished to be independent rather than to trust God. And in so doing, there would now be great consequence for his sin. He brought a curse upon himself, upon the earth, and upon all mankind. Flip over real quick to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so here we see that in Adam's disobedience, in his sin, there is great consequence for him, there's great consequence for all. So in the fall, Adam lacked the faith to believe and to trust God. 
So again, I ask, how about you? How about you? Where is your faith in regards to the commands of God throughout Scripture? Will you act as if you know better than God? Or will you follow his commands in faith, even when it's hard, trusting that he knows what is good? See, faithful obedience leads to life and blessing, right? Faithful obedience leads to life and blessing. And so back in Genesis chapter 2 here, we have this picture of God's will for us, his desire in creation. But sin destroyed all that. Sin destroyed all that, but the good news is that Christ is restoring it. Christ is restoring it. Keep your finger here in Genesis chapter 2 and flip over in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Way at the back of your Bible, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Way at the end of the Bible, okay? So you have a finger in Genesis chapter 2, finger at the beginning of Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 21, right? Now grip the middle of your Bible and hold the middle section of your Bible like this, okay? You have it gripped? All right. So outside of your grip is Genesis 1 and 2 on this side, Revelation 21 and 22 on this side. The first two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible. These four chapters picture for us God's purpose in creation. His purpose is blessing and fellowship and worship. Right? God and man together united. When you read about the new earth that is coming in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you'll read about a river flowing through, similar to a river that was in the garden, right? You'll read about gold and other gems and precious jewels, similar to what was in the garden. You'll read about trees, including the tree of life, like there was back in the garden. But you know what you won't read about in the new heaven and the new earth? You won't read about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not there. There'll be no more possibility of the knowledge, the experience of evil. It will be gone. It will be done away with. It will be no more. That's what the gospel does. It restores. The new earth will be full of abundant blessing, similar to the garden, but even greater, even greater. So everything else in the Bible, right, everything else in the middle of your grip here, all of this part of the Bible, everything that's left tells of man's sinful rebellion against God and God's redemptive plan, God's plan to restore. See, our God sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth, to die on a cross for sin, to be raised to life again, to redeem a people for himself. Our God is restoring life. Right? In the gospel, Jesus Christ is restoring both physical life in the new heavens and new earth, the new creation, as well as spiritual. He's going to restore the physical and make all things new. 
with abundant blessing. And he's restoring the spiritual life in mankind, giving everlasting life. And when Christ returns, he will bring it all to completion, to his glory. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you that you are a God who blesses abundantly. God, help us to appreciate all your blessing. God, help us to walk in faithful obedience, to not grab a hold of the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. God, give us strength to resist the temptation to sin. Give us strength to walk in faithful obedience with you. Thank you for your abundant blessing. Thank you that in Christ, in the gospel, that you are restoring all things. Thank you that we have everlasting spiritual life because of Christ. Praise you for this in Jesus' name. Uh, The charge is this, two things. One, live in humility because you are dust. And second, live in gratitude because of all the wonderful blessings of God. So live in humility, live in gratitude. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're loved. God bless you. Have a great week.